I didn't sleep for six months. Uh, I don't. Like, it was because, think about this in the hospital, especially at Walter Reed, because that's my experience. Uh, I was on four-hour vitals. Every four hours, someone would come in and check my vitals. So, like, in the middle of the night, when you're finally, like, about to fall asleep, someone's coming in and checking your vitals. They're waking you up. Mm-hmm. And then at 5 a.m. or 4.30 in the morning, all the new doctors would kind of do their, the doctors would do their rounds. And so, like, you have all the students, because it's also a teaching institute, uh, that come in and they walk into your room, they look at your chart, and someone's talking about it. At 4.30 in the freaking morning, I'm trying to sleep at this point, but, like, there's, a like, six, I hated it. There's, like, eight, six, eight, ten, twelve doctors there. Sounds like hell. Yeah, Yeah, and so, and then, you know, during the day, you have all sorts of, you, you have to do occupational therapy, you have doctors that come in. I had multiple surgeries. I've had 34 total surgeries, right? All right, today's episode of 38 Challenge Podcast is with Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg. Flo, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time away from the family. You have a beautiful n- newborn boy. Mm-hmm. How, how's that going? Yeah, it's fun. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he's amazing. He's, he's a baby, obviously, so he's got his days when he just wants to wake up and he chooses violence. But um, I, it's my favorite, my favorite little moments in my life now is just, you know, involving him and my wife and just watching him smile. So it's uh, it's a game changer for sure. Yeah, man. Well, I, I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to come out here. Remember the first time we met um, was on the U.S. or the SS American Victory in, yeah. t- in Tampa. Remember coming up and shaking your hand and, you know, telling you about the mission of, of the 38 Challenge and you, you were you were all ears and just um, super present with the conversation and I appreciate that. And then um, you went to go to auction off a bottle. Do you remember this? You went to go to... Yeah. 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 So kind of backstory on that. So the night before I met you, I was... We were walking through this like networking event at Soft Week and I saw this bottle of whiskey, right? Yeah. At, at a table. I was just, you know, going to open old-fashioned stand and went up to grab one and I saw the bottle and I had a flashback and it was horse horse soldier bourbon and that was the last whiskey that my brother and I ever had together really yeah, yeah. and then the next day I said when I met you you know we, we we were talking and you went up to auction off a bottle of horse soldier on the on this on the stage and I was like yo Flo like that was the last bottle of whiskey that my brother and I ever had together I was like probably three glasses of whiskey deep at this point so I was feeling confident and you're like Oh, you guys got to hear this. You guys got to hear this testimony. You hand me the mic. So on this, on it was for a different charity, and, <laughs> yeah, and on the Warriors Ethos, y- yeah. yeah, for Warriors Ethos. So on the um, shout out Warriors Ethos. I apologize for this, but you hand me the mic, and I was like, yeah, like thirty eight challenge, like in memory of my brother, and started talking about my own nonprofit while we while we. Uh, so it works, man. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, that was just uh, an awesome time, and then obviously had you at the event and in St. Louis or in uh, DFW and just man appreciate you TCU yeah that was pretty cool yes sir man we'll get in we'll get into all that but dude I know you since we talked in the beginning you've always been down with the mission right challenging the stigma associated with with being vulnerable Um, and before we kind of get into to your story why don't you kind of tell me what vulnerability means to you strength right I think vulnerability I've come to understand to me what vulnerability is it really represents um, strength and it's it's really difficult to be yourself. It's really difficult to share your struggles. It takes a lot of personal courage. And what people can really connect with on on a in a humanizing sense is vulnerability. We all go through really difficult moments. We all go through self doubt. We all go through you know sadness that can come from losing people or sickness or, you know, a professional outcome that you didn't expect or getting cut from, you know, a soccer team, right? Whatever it is, is, whatever it is. And we are almost at, you know, we almost like at times feel like we have to keep it inside or we don't want to appear weak. Now, take that and times it a hundred when you come into like a military setting, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, things we used to talk about uh, when guys, uh, my time in the service, were sort of reacting in a, with a weak mind. We used to call them tiny heart syndrome. 
Um, I used to do that too. You know, I used to judge people. And when I got blown up and I was in that setting where I was in a lot of pain, I was feeling sorry for myself. I remember not only was I feeling for myself, but now I'm a hypocrite because I was judging mm -hmm. those people who, uh, you know, demonstrate vulnerability. And I've come to understand that in my life, uh, being vulnerable has allowed me to create these amazing connections and relationships with people. It's opened up more doors than I'd ever expected. Um, it's allowed me to also help others in ways I never anticipated, uh, never thought I could potentially ever. And what it does, it really provides this whole human element out. And when you see it from the toughest of, you know, leaders, mm -hmm. um, that they're able to step up on stage or in a room and talk about who they are what they're going through, have gone through, and how they overcame, but be honest about it. You should look around the room and in people's eyes and be like, "My God, like, if he or she can do it and talk about it, right. what, what am I ashamed of?" Yep. Yeah, man, and that's the purpose of this podcast. And I had a dude reach out saying, "Like, it's so empowering and so refreshing to see, you know." all these special operators and Medal of Honor recipients, right, sharing their struggles, right, that they went through it too. It's like everyone goes through it, man. And just having the lessons, like you said, teaching these lessons, right, and, and every day is, is, is still a battle, right? There's no, not every day is awesome. People need to understand that. And so we'll get into your story and how vulnerability helps you and you know, August 8th is an important date for, for both of us. August 8th is 1989 is when my brother was born and it's also your your alive day right? yeah. august day 2012 uh, which is just which is just crazy well, if you don't mind why don't you walk us through kind of the events that happened on on august day 2012 yeah august 2012 we were in afghanistan this was my second tour eastern eastern part of afghanistan in kunar province um it's just, interestingly enough that's where i was deployed in my first tour but on that specific uh, deployment, I was in charge of a security detail for the brigade commander at the time, Colonel Mingus, now Lieutenant General Mingus. And the mission was simple, plan his travels, coordinate uh, those with, and his mission plans with the receiving units across six different provinces and 45 different outstations or bases uh, in Afghanistan. And I loved it. I got to see Afghanistan from a really completely different view, point of view. I got to sit in some really powerful meetings with top leaders and almost better understand the strategy behind what our mission was over mm -hmm. there. And you know, I got to meet some really cool people. But on August 8, 2012, uh, that meeting was, that day was supposed to be an easy patrol. Uh, we we're flying out to the Kunar Provincial Governor's Meeting, happened every Wednesday at the same time. We didn't go every, every Wednesday, obviously. We didn't want to uh, creative pattern and it was green I mean that, that area is pretty green in essence and green meaning that there was um, not much going on in terms of mm -hmm. threat uh, you're talking about flying into a base that's right by the water uh, surrounded by the provincial governor's compound and like the, the police academy right so you're kind of uh, you feel like all right pretty safe to an extent but one thing that I learned early on early on in Afghanistan is uh, it doesn't matter how safe you feel, every day, you know, is a dangerous day, right? right. Wherever you go, mm -hmm. there's always a threat. So we need that. But on, on that day, I showed up to uh, uh, Fop Fias, uh, I'm sorry, Cop Fias. Um, and, you know, I was expecting to receive an escort of 12 to 15 soldiers. So when I planned the missions, I would call the, the units the night before and be like, hey, Tomorrow, I'm bringing the boss and these five, six, seven other individuals. I'm bringing my six security element. We're wheels up at this time, wheels down at this time. This is his intent. This is what he wants to do. If we're going outside of wire, like we need a minimum 12 to 15 soldier escort. Mm -hmm. And the plan was that those 12 to 15 are the outer element. And then my six, we were the inner element, meaning that I would put the principles people were protecting in a in a diamond and I'd have my four guys plus two protect that so in case we got attacked we collapse on the principles literally just like secret service exactly what they would do like, right. immediately get on principles cover them shield them those 12 to 15 they fight the threat and then we exfil out 
right? Got it. So that's the whole plan. Mm -hmm. On that day when I showed up at uh, at that base, there was no element. Mm. None, none of the soldiers were there. And I'd call the night prior. I told them that I'm bringing one, you know, a heavy element of soul, of leaders, two brigade commanders and Afghan generals, two battalion commanders, uh, two command sergeant majors, uh, some GS-15 State Department folks. And the guy, the guy that answered was a major and he said, yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm going to take the, the soldiers and I'm going to clear the route prior to arrival. And I was like, uh, okay, no. Like, so I put them on mute, took a deep breath, looked at the lieutenant, the adjutant for the colonel. And I said, I'm going to ask this guy the same thing. He's probably going to get really pissed off. Okay. So I, you know, obviously unmuted. And I was like, sir, I'm literally bringing these folks mm -hmm. and I'm bringing your boss, your boss and your boss's boss. You might want to be there, right? I didn't say that in so many words. I just repeated my request and he told me to F off. And he's just like, I got this. I thought, man, this guy, he must be having a bad day. He's going to sleep on it. He's going to wake up. Be like, well, I might want to be here. Right. But um, I was wrong. And so by the time we landed, I saw no one. And at that point in the military, you adjust, right? You adjust and you adapt to the situation. So immediately I started thinking of plan B. I was pretty fired up. But I was thinking of plan B. And I saw a bunch of Afghan National Army soldiers smoking cigarettes by the gate. So I told my translator to go go to them and tell them that they're coming with us. Mm -hmm. And I told my platoon sergeant at the time, "Hey, make sure like you put them up front. You can you know you let them know what to do." And then I switched everything. I ran into the base trying to find some soldiers, uh, you know, anyone that was in the chow hall, anyone that was sleeping, right? Just not actually on, on patrol. And I found one specifically named Sergeant O'Brien, who used to work for me. Mm -hmm. I woke him up, told him to come with us, and. He's still pissed to this day, probably because he lost a butt, half a butt cheek. But anyway, right. um, and then I added some some civilian guy that worked like their American guy somehow, some way. He had a weapon systems, and then I told Brink, "Get up front, and I need you to um, control the pace, and I also want you to keep eyes on the Afghan National Army soldiers because we didn't trust them." And we went on patrol, and about seven hundred meters into a patrol, the uh, we saw two motorcycles coming out full speed towards us um, around this corner and we were on a bridge so we couldn't go anywhere mm -hmm. and at the same moment as right there were structures right before the bridge and a guy came out of it and it was a diversion led by an ambush um, and I saw the guy um, because of my platoon sergeant who turned around to look at me to make sure I was tracking what was happening with the situation and instead of looking at me he started looking to my left which forced me to look to my left, and that's when I saw that guy. And that, at that point, I knew that we had a threat. Um, and so I just um, I adjusted my mindset immediately. Now, I couldn't see a weapon on him, so I couldn't shoot him. And I sure as heck didn't want to shoot a civilian. Mm -hmm. But I knew in my head and my heart, every spidey you know, senses right. told something me was off. something yeah. was off. Yeah. So I adjusted my rules of engagements, and I just sprinted towards him. And as he was coming towards us. And I yelled at him, said some nice words to him. And then mm -hmm. when I got close to him, I hit him with my rifle. And that's when I felt he had something on his chest. So next I grabbed him. And that's when I realized he was wearing a vest. Um, I saw Mahoney, my my radio guy, follow me into it. And then I just yelled, bomb. And I just, you know, all I could think about was I got to get this guy away as quickly as possible, as far away as possible, because he's going to kill my friends. And um, yeah, I threw him to the ground. And he landed on his chest. And Mahoney uh, helped me when I was thrown to the ground. So I threw him, and Mahoney was next to me trying to push him down. And when he landed on his chest, um, he detonated. And, you know, I woke up uh, about 20, 30 feet away, and I, my foot was facing me. My fibula was, was out. Uh, blood everywhere. I, my ears were ringing. I was just, you know, in a daze. And I realized that... Um, Something had happened. I just couldn't remember what it was. So, mm -hmm. that, but I probably stepped in, I, in an IED. Wow. Um, and the cool thing about it, though, is so so afterwards, you had no recollection that you just had thrown the gut. Yeah. No. Yeah. It took it took a while. Um, right. It took a while. Like I I couldn't. You just you're in a daze, right? Yeah. What yeah. just happened? Right. But all I could think of was I must have stepped in an IED, and this is an ambush. And there's like this cloud of dust, right? Mm -hmm. 
I can't see anything. And I was like, man, they're going to come in. So I got to get my weapons. So I couldn't find my rifle. So I took my pistol and made sure I had around the chamber. I started dragging myself out. And I was just waiting to pop anyone that came towards me. Luckily, the first person that came towards me was my platoon sergeant, mm-hmm. who grabbed me by uh, the handle of my plate carrier and t- took me, dragged me into a ditch. And then my medic with a torn PCL, MCL, and then a pretty severe concussion. You saved my life. You applied a tourniquet and you just, you know, kept me awake. Right. The but the part that makes it the worst day of our lives is the fact that we lost four. Mm-hmm. So a guy detonated a bomb on my feet and I watched him do it and I lived. But four Americans twenty feet away were killed by the ball bearings that went that direction yeah. from that guy. Um, and that's Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggie Abdel Fattah. Luckily, uh, the second suicide bomber, there's another one, uh, was walking out, was about to walk out of that, that structure, but because we reacted so quickly as a team, we prevented him from actually coming out. So he detonated his bomb inside the structure. Oh, and wow. that, and for, for about a a year, I always thought the second bomber was the one I had killed my friends. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like right. that made the most sense to me. Yeah. Like maybe like he detonated in a structure and then the ball bearings from that from that location went there. But it wasn't when they did, you know, forensics and things like that. And the investigation came back out. It was like, no, nah, it was that guy in the first wow. one. It was like crazy. So yeah, that changed my life. Um, my military career, in essence. Uh, my combat military career, in essence, ended on that day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went through that difficult period of time after that. Yeah, man, let's get into that. I mean, because you you had this eight seconds of courage with every intention that you were not going to live. I mean, if you were probably not thinking about that in the moment, but then you wake up and it's just you. And like you said, the hardest part about it is that you lost four of your closest friends and, and soldiers that day. Yeah. So what what did the time in the hospital look like after that 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 dark period for you? What's well, funny, right? You go through phases. It's not funny, but it's you go through phases. So the first phase is is uh reality check-in, right? You're because I mean, think about this. I had so many surgeries. Um I couldn't the first six weeks I could not uh, recognize on a picture what a giraffe was. I knew what it was. It would come in and show me pictures of animals, and I'd be like, mm-hmm. sometimes I'd be like, it's a cat. Right, right. right? And then it would show me a giraffe. I remember a giraffe specifically because that really frustrated me because I was like, I know what this is. I couldn't do simple math. And I was pretty good at math, so I just want to put that out there. But I couldn't do simple math, like two plus two. Uh, I'd be like, okay, I think that's four. They're like, okay, well, how many quarters in a dollar? Wow, right? I was like, I don't know, couldn't do it, mm-hmm. right? Couldn't even write it down. So that freaked me out. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and then I was on oxys, dilated, ketamine, uh, morphine, uh, a bunch, you know, IV Benadryl to go to sleep at night, and I couldn't sleep. Right? So I was in this consistent, you know, this cloud of of drugs, of my brain being injured, and then I started. All I could think about was what happened, and I sh- because I couldn't recollect mm-hmm. what happened on that day, I I I would stay up as long as I could to try to like figure it out, to search it in my head, and that's when at nights, when all the doctors, all the visitors, you know, it's like a freak show, man. It's be so many people like walk into your room, just want to talk to you and stuff. You're mm-hmm. like, what the heck, you know? But all the doctors are done. It's just you and in your bed in the dark. And that's when I started really allowing my demons to come in. And my demons would say, it doesn't matter what happened on that day. Four people died because of you. And then it started playing tricks on, well, what do you bring to the table? You know, uh, you're single. You, you, know, you like to go party with your friends. You play game, video games. Uh, they had, you know, Kennedy had twins, a year old. Gray had three kids. Mm-hmm. You know, Griffin had you know Kylie and, and Dane, right? And Dane was in the, in the army, was in the army. Um, Reggae had two two sons, right? 
they're gone. They all were like incredibly well-regarded people. Like it's kind of crazy, like how impactful every single one of them was. Let's be honest, right? There are just people that just they're there and they're there. Like the whole purpose in their life is just to take care of them themselves, maybe their families. They're never truly active in their community. They don't bring anything extra, and that's okay, right? That's what it, you know. As long as you're a good person, that's how, that doesn't matter. Yeah. These all all four of these individuals were actually like leaders in their community, in their church, in their faith, in uh, their trade. Uh, you know, I see more people. Heck, I was just at the uh, Air Force uh, uh, Academy. Uh, two days ago to go speak to the cadets mm -hmm. and one of the lead uh, cadre there was a a, a JTAC uh, uh, guy who was there with us and he's just you know worked for Gray and he's just telling me all these stories about Gray uh, all the people from West Point talk about Kennedy all the time I will walk through the airport and people will recognize me not often right but occasionally and they're usually people that work with with, uh, with Kennedy yeah. or like were impacted by Kennedy mm -hmm. um Griffin, it was one of the greatest leaders I've ever I had the opportunity to spend time with. I would literally sit there every night before I would meet with the boss or wait for the boss to kind of like say thumbs up and just speak with him about life, about wrestling, about his kids, about, you know, my career aspirations, about what, you know, combat meant to him and leadership and stuff. And he, so he was a, a mentor of mine and he was like that for so many people. And so you start realizing these things mm -hmm. and you start telling yourself well they died on your watch you're responsible for this so here are these amazing people and what the heck do you bring to the table nothing you're worthless you're the problem no one's gonna miss you actually probably people would like you know would trade you for them in in an instant mm -hmm. and then you start hating yourself and then you apply that and you add substance on top of it mm -hmm. right in this case, substance for me was narcotics that are giving me for pain control. And those demons are just immense. And they overtake every brain cells in your head. And at that point, you're completely defeated because they know you better than you know yourself. They're always one step ahead. And you start to realize that no, no enemy I've ever fought, Taliban, Chechnyans, Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, Haqqani Network, uh, anyone I ever fought was as lethal or dangerous than my own brain. And it gets scary because then you start thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're a Division One athlete. I was a Division One athlete in Maryland when I ran track. You're Ranger qualified. If you've been in, you know, 200 plus firefights, uh, you know, you're an alpha type of individual. Uh, your brain will will level you in a, place, in a place that you never thought you could go. Mm -hmm. And it will destroy you really quickly. And so that to me is what I, where I was at in um, the subsequent months after um, after um, August 8, 2012. So how did you start to fight those demons? I got lucky. I was in a controlled environment, meaning I was in the hospital. So, and I had a lot of doctors and nurses around me. And I had a lot of professionals who had seen me over the years who understood that I was in pain, even though I didn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And they noticed and one and but they couldn't get through me. And I think that happens a lot. Right. It's just I know they sent a psychiatrist in there uh, and every day a psychiatrist, by the way, very consistent. Um, yeah, she would come in. And try to talk to me, and I would just be like, "So what's this Cubs score today, right?" And that's all I talk. I'll just Cubs. I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wouldn't talk to her about anything because you know what? She never served a day in her life in overseas. In my head, I'm like, you cannot understand anything I'm going to tell you. I don't care if you have PhDs; it doesn't matter. You've never stepped on that land. You've never been in my shoes, so it's impossible for you to truly understand what I'm going through right now. And so that, to me, that was my mindset, right? right? So I was very dismissive. And luckily, what happened is there's this guy, I, I, know, you, but I don't know if you met him, but you probably heard of him for sure, Travis Mills. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's a quadruple amputee uh, who was blown up in uh, the same year, uh, in April of that year. And he had, I guess he had heard about me or whatever it was. I don't know how it really happened. 
but he walked into my room in November of 2012 and in 15 minutes he just rewired me in a way that he probably didn't intend to or expect it but it, it really it was one of those pivotal moments in my life that I always look back and be like that's when things change because I remember him walking in and being with four prosthetics with a smile on his face and it shocked me and I was like what the you know, yeah. <laughs> what is, you know, who's this dude, first of all? And like, holy crap, like, and he come in and he's just like, we started talking. And he says, I heard you're struggling a little bit. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. He's like, that's fine, you're good. And he's like, just want to let you know, like, the situation that you're facing going forward is you have to represent your brother's income home. And you have a story of overcoming adversity and beating the odds that is going to impact a ton of people. So I just want to remind you that you have a mission in front of you that's really important. And you have a lot of work in front of you and that you matter and that your story matters. And I think in the end, you know, the ones that we've lost will be proud of us for being advocates in our community. Mm -hmm. And what he did, which no one else could, because everyone else wanted to explain to me my pain and why I shouldn't feel that pain. He said, forget that. You're, I don't understand your pain. You don't understand mine. It's very unique to you. But I just want to let you know that even though the pain is there, you still matter and you still have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me a glimpse of light in a really dark tunnel. At that point, I felt like, okay, I can still do things to earn it. Right? I can still represent my friends that didn't come home and, you know, and do something that's going to make their families proud. And so part of that was I made a self-commitment at that point that every time I talked about the medal or anything, you know, actually I didn't know about the medal at the time, but anything right. I talked about my story, I can yeah, say, yeah. Um, and in my life, I would bring up the guys that didn't come home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my friends got me, not this one, but a similar bracelet. And that's, that was the start of my healing journey, which was really not about forgiving myself, but about making sure that I earned the right to still be on this earth mm -hmm. and that I made them proud. And he did that in 15 minutes. Like he was in there maybe 12, 15 minutes. Right. He walked out and at that point I started looking at my injuries and saying, why do you really stop complaining about my injuries? Like I lost 50% of my calf, my deaf and left ear, but like, you know, they fused my foot and all that stuff. But that is nothing compared to this dude that just walked in and then, you know, with no limbs. And if he can smile, why the hell can I, can't I smile? Mm -hmm. He's not telling me you should smile because look at me. He never, he, that's not Travis. Instead, he said, you know, he gave me purpose. Absolutely. So after those 15 minutes, so this was, how long was this after that the Travis It was run? in November. Okay. So, so a couple months. A couple yeah. months. So what were some of those next steps that you started to take after those 15 minutes and you started to see that light? Like how could you start to see, obviously your mindset was changed, but then what are things that you started incorporating in your your day to day? So it took a while, right? Um, there were a couple of things that I didn't know I needed to fix, but needed, needed to happen. One, I needed to sleep. Mm -hmm. I didn't sleep for six months. Um, I don't. Like it was because, think about this in the hospital, especially at Walter Reed, because that's my experience. Uh, I was on four-hour vitals. Every four hours, someone would come in and check my vitals. So like in the middle of the night, when you're finally like about to fall asleep, someone's coming in and checking your vitals. They're waking you up. Mm -hmm. And then at 5 a.m. or 4.30 in the morning, all the new doctors would kind of do, their, the doctors would do their rounds. And so like you have all the students, because it's also a teaching institute, uh, that come in and they walk into your room, they look at your chart and someone's talking about it. At 4.30 in the freaking morning, I'm trying to sleep at this point, but like there's a like six, I hated it. There's like eight, six, eight, 10, 12 doctors there. Sounds like hell. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then, you know, during the day you have all sorts of, you, you have to do occupational therapy, you have doctors that come in. I had multiple surgeries. I've had 34 total surgeries, right? And then you have, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, you have all sorts of people that come in nonstop. And then you have the priest and you have uh, just random people. Yeah. The Warrior Project that came in and beyond. You know, all good people want to help you, but it takes a toll. And finally, you start to realize, like, I have no freedom. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Like, I people could walk into my room at any moment, whenever they want it. They could come talk to me, whatever the heck they wanted. I lived in this environment where like I needed help to go to the bathroom. Um, I couldn't watch whatever I wanted to watch because like, you know, or I could technically, but it was the seven, eight channels that they had there, right? right? Maybe more. And I said, after a while, I said, seriously, I'm gonna make this my own. So 
I got a, I brought a TV, I brought a PlayStation. Uh, I started bringing my own stuff and decorating my room the way I wanted to. I was like, this is going to be my environment. And then I started telling the nurses, I was like, I don't want anyone in my room. Mm-hmm. So they put a note. I didn't know could do that. But like, you know, because I, I complained to Haley Willis when I was like, why are all these people walking into my room? She's like, oh, you don't want them? I'm like, no. And she's like, cool, no problem. So she put a <laughs> note. No one else except doctors yeah, that- could walk into my room. I was like, really? I could have done this two months ago? Yeah. Damn. Like, <laughs> and so you started adapting to your environment. And, but one thing I, I knew right from the get-go is I needed to sleep. So then I became addicted to IV Benadryl. Because mm-hmm. that was the only thing that would allow me to fall asleep. And I can still to this day, now I, I'm not, I don't do, uh, I don't do drugs. I've just, you know, I, there's no, I don't do substance stuff. Like, right. and I, hell, I haven't drank in, in six months now. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying I didn't drink before. I, we've had our fair share of fun. And yeah. I was drinking that night too when yeah. I saw you. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I can, I understand, I can almost like understand when people like talk about like addiction to a drug. I became addicted to IV Benadryl where like to this day, right now, I can feel the feeling mm-hmm. of how I loved it. Cause it would like, they would put it in my veins and it would get cold. And it just passed through my whole body, and immediately I would start to relax, and I would just fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And that was that was my currency. That was gold for me. And so they realized that, like, hey, this dude's like always asking us for IV Benadryl, so we need to wean him off that. It got pretty bad mm-hmm. because when I became an outpatient, I was trying to figure out how to buy it, like offline. It was, mm-hmm. Then I went in to the doctor. I was like, I think this is like serious because I'm trying to figure out how to buy it. And he's like, Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, but. I knew I needed to sleep and I didn't sleep for a year, like at all, really. Like, I mean, maybe like an hour, two hours at a time. Was this after the Benadryl or? Yeah, after the Benadryl. Even with the Benadryl, I only slept for like two hours. Yeah, okay. Right, it just let me fall asleep. Right. Uh, now I wake up. So it wasn't even really solving the problem. Mm-hmm. But um, something crazy happened, not two, two years. So, and it took two years of this. And so they put me on Ambien. And I am not good at Ambien. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, you know what I am? At least I'm not that bad on Ambien, but I'm the, my problem with Ambien is I used to stay up and, you know, play games or like watch a movie on my own, right? There's nothing to do. And I'll take Ambien and try to fall asleep. But I wouldn't fall, I would just be thinking and thinking. And I guess I was combating that. And then I would get up and start watching infomercials. Mm-hmm. And then I start ordering like crock pots and stuff. I'm serious, man. I had like a bunch of weird stuff, like being yeah. shit. I don't remember. I was just like, I ordered. I, I watched Montel Williams, and 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 I would watch like all these like, all right, for 19.99, an easy three payments of 19.99, you can get this crock pot. These night, I start ordering all that stuff, mm-hmm. and they were like showing up. I'm like, what? Are I? Like I call on a credit card, and like <laughs> yeah. you guys, like someone stole my credit card. They're like, what are you doing at four o'clock in the morning? I was like, oh my god, I think I'm doing this. So, but what I was doing in my in, in what I was trying to do to recover was I started being honest with myself. Mm-hmm. I started realizing like I was in pain um, and I was trying to figure out ways to, I stopped playing a game of re when I started to remember of trying to change the outcome or playing a game of, well, if I would have done this, this would have happened. If I would have done that, this would have happened. Right. And these, they would have lived or like, I want to trade places and things. So I stopped playing that game and, and I started being honest with me. It's like, they're dead. They're gone. Um, I'll never forget I'll never for, forget them. And I'm going to sit there in this rest of my life. But I can't live in this negative mindset forever. So I started being honest with myself. And at that point, I started seeking help. And I didn't realize how I was getting that help. But one thing I really appreciate about Walter Reed is I was surrounded with warriors that have been injured or were going through cancer or whatever that, you know their situation was. And you would kind of like get in groups together, unsanctioned groups, and just share and talk. And I remember like, wow, I felt better when I would just sort of like tell them how I was feeling to an extent. And so that was my part, but I still wasn't sleeping. Mm-hmm. And when I wasn't, I was so, I wasn't always in this anxiety state, frustration state, because I just didn't rest. And that changed in starting October 2014 when I met Carson, my wife. Mm. And I knew she was different than any anyone else before because when I the first night that I got to sleep over at her apartment, 
It's the first night in years that I slept for like six straight hours. Wow. Without anything. Mm -hmm. I forgot my pills. You know, we went out. And I was like, oh. You know, I woke up. And it didn't hit me until I got home. I'm like, hold on. What just happened? And then, yeah. And so it's fascinating the power of like of comfort. Um, and she made me feel safe in a weird way. Like, I didn't feel unsafe. But, like, she made me feel like I could be me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about, when I was with her, I didn't think about August 8th. I didn't think about, you know, the pain. I was thinking about her. And I started realizing, wow, I don't need Ambien. I stopped thinking Ambien. I just hung out with her all the time. It was a great excuse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it started changing my life. And a year after that, you know, and I went in the clandestine sector in the government. I was recruited and I went to work and I, I felt like this this sense of, of of duty and patriotism was back. So that helped me too. I felt like I mattered. I was going after bad guys again. Um, and I wanted to, you know, earn my spot, right? And then I received the medal. And that ended that career. And so I was almost started to go down. Like if you look at pictures, man, I just stopped working out. Like I had this pressure on me being a recipient of Medal of Honor now. And you know, feeling ashamed of, of that because mm-hmm. like, you're in the military. So, so you were in a good spot before yeah. the medal, and then you feel like the medal. Yeah, I was getting of, in a good spot. Yeah, right? yeah. I was sleeping. Uh, I was honest. I didn't. T- I didn't talk about August 8th unless like I was with some very specific people, but I, I buried it. Now I'm saying I was in a good spot, but I wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Instead, what I did is I put into the side because now I was focused on like chasing Al Shabaab and and you know ISIS and things like that, right? Because I was back in it. So I was burying my pain mm-hmm. and be, and focusing on on the mission, right? And I was almost over obsessing in the, like my mission piece, uh, but I was sleeping, so I was like, "That's a win." So I'm good. You start, you know, telling yourself that, and I was like, and I did the whole honesty thing, like I'm good. And then when I received the medal, when President Obama called me and, and told me I was going to see the medal, my job told me, "Well, you can't do this job anymore. You can't be in a clandestine sector and have a Wikipedia page." Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, I disagree. And it's the greatest cover ever. But at that point, it took away that massive passion of mine and what was literally shielding me away from all that pain. And it came back. And now here I was on a pedestal, on a platform, um, literally, literally, literally singled out uh, for an action where four incredible Americans died, where I felt that I failed, and I had to live with that. And so I felt like that was wrong, felt ashamed, felt like a fraud for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And then all those demons started to come back. Mm-hmm. And I started, and then, then there was a tour. And the tour is you go around different cities and you talk to, you know, on all these like talk shows, games, throw a first pitch, whatever it is, and go to basketball games, sit in the front. You know, it was, it was cool, but you drink a lot. And then people keep at, like, now I'm talking to a bunch of strangers about August 8th. Mm-hmm. I wasn't comfortable about doing that. And so you drink a lot. I didn't work out. And I started getting, like, skinny fat, which is the worst thing that ever happened to anyone. <laughs> right? I'd rather be fat, fat, like a big guy, you know, right. fat, but skinny fat. Well, it's just terrible. Where you look good, but just, except for when your shirt's off in the mirror. No, dude. Like, for me, skinny fat is I had this coming, you know. And, oh, like, yeah. oh, man. Like, I'm, like, I'm like the worst guy that gets fat. Like, I said, I really have to watch it because, like, it comes all to my face. And, like, and like right here, it's just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And my, my you know, she was my girlfriend at the time. My not wife, Carson, was like, you need to, like. And she started seeing me get angry mm-hmm. uh, at home and started to do the binge drinking like crazy. Um and the, the frustrations and like I used to like you know when the doors closed at home I would just go ballistic not like physically but like in like my words and like um, my drinking and things like that and I didn't understand why and so um, we did self therapy to an extent where I you know no one really knows about this but like I I I went to see a therapist for for drinking mm-hmm. and to understand why I was binge drinking like that so i wasn't just let me clarify i didn't come home and drink every night but when i went out i would get plastered right right i, I didn't i had no control mm-hmm. uh especially specifically when i went out with military people and so she started noticing and i would come home and be like this just you're just a terrible person um to myself and you know i would sit there with terrible things to her and i wouldn't wake up the next morning and i remember 
Yeah. And then to apologize. And that is, that is not a recipe for success in any type of relationship. And so I took ownership of that and I started realizing, okay, that's where I was. And I, 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 I met with this therapist for about eight weeks. It wasn't even long. And what she did was amazing to me is that she didn't tell me to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. She just gave me like sort of a, 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 a menu of how to drink. Mm. It's crazy. Like it's, yeah. it's, and what that did is that immediately did not turn me off her. Cause I, she didn't come in. Right. So like, drinking is bad. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. She said, tell me why you're drinking. I would tell her. She's like, okay, so you're pretty much a social binge drinker with no control. I was like, yep, you got me on the head. She's like, okay, well, let's do this. She's like, when you go out and drink, do you take shots? I was like, yeah, all the time. She's like, okay, all right. I'm not telling you not to take shots, but like, what, how do you eat? It's like, what do you mean? She's like, before you go out, you know, to the bar, do you have a full meal? Would you eat a dinner or lunch? And I was like, I don't know, not usually. She's like, well, let's do something. Um, Liz, if you know you're going to go out, have a good meal, you know, put that substance in your stomach, right? Let it, let it try to absorb some of the alcohol. And then if you're going to do a shot, follow it by a water. Mm-hmm. And you just big glass of water and don't do another shot until then. She's like, I recommend, my recommendation is you start restricting those shots and you can have your drinks, right? And then she's like, but make sure you have food in your system and you're drinking water and you're cognizant of where you're at. And I was like, okay, so start with a game plan. And as we got through the weeks, I was like, you know what? I don't, I, I, I think the shots are the problem. Like, yeah, yeah. They are. I, mean, I feel good when I'm done taking shots, yeah. But geez, it's like that's a, the military, that's a good point. Yeah. It's the military <laughs> thing. It's like it's, it's like it's the sports thing. It's yeah. just like, you know, shots, right? Everybody's right, like, yeah. you know, yeah. okay. But like, and then you can do like six of them in an hour. Mm-hmm. You don't even realize it, especially when you're in a setting. And oh, actually, yeah. you know, I'm, and, and I was the worst because I didn't brown out. I wish I was like a dude. I, I go from normal to blacked out. Mm-hmm. Literally, like there's a video like my she took of me where I'm talking and three minutes later, I can't even like put a sense together. Right. I'm like having a full conversation like we are and three minutes later, I'm like, dude, so I, I, I shift, I blacked out mm-hmm. and that's just the worst possible outcome. Right. And so I started realizing that that was that, but there was a reason behind all that. Is because I was still hurting on the inside, and now I was recipient of Medal of Honor. I was an executive at a big company, and so I shouldn't have problems. Mm. I should be like I'm supposed to be the face. And um, when I went through that those eight weeks, that's when we start really getting more deeper about like where those mm. issues were coming why from, this was coming and from. why this was. And we started with like let's have a game plan on your drinking to pinpointing what the problem is with that specific drinking to the cause of that action mm. to a solution. And one of the solutions was to really open up to my wife and and to find that circle of people where I could just really dump. And f- crazy enough, because of the metal, I started getting asked to go speak publicly, right? Mm-hmm. A public speaker. And I just... Was that hard at first? Yeah, I was terrible, in my opinion. I mean, people were like, oh, you're good. And I watched myself speak. I can't... By the way, I would never listen to this. Mm-hmm. This this thing, I'll never listen to it. Yeah. I'll never watch anything I'm on. Because I'm just too critical. And it just, just makes me... Whatever. Right. <laughs> and so... But Carson made me listen to a couple of, of my first speeches. And then a couple of people that I'm really close with who are in the business, you know, were correcting me and then I went to his coach a little bit like to just he gave me some pointers because I would get really nervous but like people wouldn't realize this but I would just I was that guy the worst speaker you can possibly have when you think he's done you know for an hour he, he just keeps, keeps going yeah. and you're like <laughs> and I was wrapping up another 20 minutes and I just couldn't because I didn't know how to end I didn't have a, a process in place. And I went to see a coach and he just gave me a couple of pointers. He said, when you are speaking publicly and there's a thousand people or 50 people in a room, every line that you say, focus on the person. Just find one person in that audience and you're, you're talking to them directly. It's gonna feel more personal to you. Mm-hmm. And the next line, move to another person. And that really like helped me yeah. feel more comfortable on stage. And then I started to realize it's therapy. 
I told this, you know, a similar story over and over again. I just told my life story. And then over the years, it's grown to my life story, then corporate. It's gone to my life story, corporate community, and then kind of my experiences. But there's always an element of August 8th where I'm able to say the, the guy's names and boom, like it's therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm honest about myself. I'm vulnerable on stage. Yep. I'm talking about the ugliest moments in my life and I'm sharing them with you. I'm being open about it. I'm being honest. And it's therapy. And I started to realize what a platform the metal has provided me. Not only can I talk about my guys, but it's literally save, saving me from mm-hmm. me. And um, yeah, it's been crazy. Dude, that's it's an incredible story. So when you were going to ask for help, right? Like, was how hard was that for you to do? Because I mean from obviously your past mindset of, of blocking everything in to then kind of unveiling the things that, that you were locking inside. Like how difficult was that asking for help? Oh, it was incredibly difficult. First of all, it's just like the process of asking for help. Mm-hmm. Who to ask from, uh, who to ask, you know, is, is, is one of the topics I had in my head for such a long time. Yeah. So who you're trying to associate. Who did you ask? Well, it's actually funny because one of the, the first person I talked to uh, was a psychologist at Walter Reed because he was a former infantryman. Mm. And he just was super chill. Mm-hmm. And he never judged me. And I think one of the things I, I told him when it was done, I said, I really appreciate you because I'd come in and we shoot the shit and we just talk and you'd ask me a couple of questions. Um, and, you know, you give me a background of like, you know, you give me a background of who he was. And I could understand that he understood, I understood that he understood what it felt like to put the boots on and walk on that battlefield. And I told him, I was like, you are the most impactful person in this hospital right now, in my personal opinion, Mm -hmm. because this is the hardest part that we have to go through is our mental health, um, our spiritual and mental health. Right. And you, we can relate to you and I can relate to you. So at least me, uh, and I thank him for that. And so that was the first person, so I almost had a freebie. But I look at my friends who are who were not in a who are not or were not in a control environment like I was, and that's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And then you hear the stories like I don't trust the VA, I don't trust this, I don't trust that, and so they feel alone and they feel like they have no one to talk to. But we always forget that we have a brotherhood and sisterhood element in front of us of so the people we serve with, and. They might not be going through the exact same thing that you're going through, but they're probably going through something s- similar because they were a lot of them were in those situations, right? So I had a whole crew of my friends who went through August eight with me. I'm not the only person that went through August eight, mm-hmm. you know, from Mingus, Walrath to my team, Brink, Ochar, uh, Baldrama, Secor, you know, Mahoney, those guys, and many more, Colonel Powers, and so on and so forth. Newton. I was like, I'm not alone in this. And so when I had the opportunity to hang out with them mm-hmm. and we were able to share stories, you start to realize like, okay, it's okay to feel this way. And so you start using, you know, that peer group as a, um, as your own little crutch, right? Towards health. And then you start to realize that it, you don't have to just stay, you know, in that, in that sector. And I started to be more open about listening to other people instead of wanting to tell my story. Mm. So that's why I don't do many of these, right? Right. Um, and you start to realize that a lot of people hurting for different multitude of reasons, like the way you're hurting, right, mm-hmm. with your brother. Uh, and that we all have stories and we should share these stories because your story impacts me. Uh, one, it gives me like a sense of hope. It gives me a sense of pride. Uh, it, it, it empowers me. And, keeps me hungry to go do more and support our community because there's so much good that we can do in, in, you know, in such dark moments. And when I started to realize that I started associating with other people in completely different settings than mine that had no association with maybe even the military, mm-hmm. and you start to realize like my story can impact them, their story can impact me. And so I started connecting with more people um, and start building this network of, of, you know, of health. Um, of mental health 
And the last thing was people who are in the medical field and, you know, knowing that and, and you know, that even though I can do everything with talking, that I still need to, to heal my body. Mm -hmm. um, and I started thinking, no, it's just not the athletic, I mean, the medical field is the athletic field too. And this is when, you know, working with, with Dave, Bora, and oh, ATF, yeah. and what you're doing with 38 Challenge and the other groups of being able to, you put on a, a mission of physical, mental health, right? Mm -hmm. How important those two are to, to keep you healthy. Right. And I started really putting together a, a, a process um, that's, I think, has gotten me in a really good spot today. That's awesome, man. Thank you for your vulnerability. And I know, as you mentioned, I'm sure it's not something you share a lot, some of those some of those points. And that's what this whole show is about, right, for awesome dudes like yourself to empower people to share their stories. And it, it means the world. I want to wrap us up um, just a couple questions. One, before the show, um, we talked about Let's Talk TBI with the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Yeah. And your experience, as you mentioned, with, with a pretty gnarly concussion. Um, my first question is, would you be willing to pledge your brain to Project Enlist so that we can further awareness on how brain injuries are impacting the mental health of veterans? Uh, 100%. Absolutely. I'm definitely committed to doing that. Specifically, uh, after going through um, the TBI checks and the brain uh, imaging that I did recently for my hyperbaric uh, chambers treatment, mm -hmm. um, and just to see the impact of not just that blast, but I probably years, right? Of, right. And there was other blasts before and concussions and drop in things like, and just, you know, how my brain, how injured my brain has been, mm -hmm. but also the, the effects of those injuries. And when they connected those about me, like I, uh, excessiveness, like I'm obsessed. Like I was used to get obsessed, like, like until recently with my grass in Seattle. Right. Like, I mean, every day I'd walk outside and I'll just be like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm obsessed. I want to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem, right? right? That was a problem. And when we looked at my scans and they did the report and they're like, that is potentially, they didn't, I didn't tell them anything about me. Right. And they're like, well, we see this trait. Is this, are you feeling like, you know, and they went like to the pinpoint. I was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah. It's like, thank you. There's a reason. Right. Yeah. That. So was that, was that comforting knowing that you had an injury to your brain and like, you're like, okay, wow, this makes, this oh, makes sense. Oh, it changes everything. Yeah. Because you don't know why you're like that. Right. You don't know how to fix it. You just think that's you. Mm -hmm. And you forget who you were before. And now you have a, it's almost like an answer to, to your biggest questions. And now you can go figure out a path forward right? to fix it. Absolutely. So it gives you hope. What's that, what's that path been like for you? Well, I took, so step one is I went and did 40 hours of 40 different sessions of hyperbaric chamber. Okay. Um, you know, those dives were amazing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and couple of things, obviously the oxygen and the healing effects, but also the ability to just lay down and disconnect for an hour, hour and 15 minutes every day for 40 straight days. Well, that's not true. It's not 40 straight days. It was uh, uh, five. I did it six days a week. So mm -hmm. with one day off. So whatever amount of weeks those were. And I was able to, you know, over the course of those, uh, you know, five, six weeks, seven weeks, just be like, set a game like a, a game plan mm -hmm. right and you know and then on eight on the eighth week you know you're kind of like or the seventh week you're kind of like i got i, I feel different right. i really feel different yeah like i am not as excitable um i don't feel obsessed with you know the the pool and you know the, the the plants behind the pool are mm -hmm. dead. My cactus are like well, my cactus died over this winter. It just you get so freaking cold. A year ago, I was losing my mind. Right. Because I'd be like, that cost me three thousand dollars, and that's three thousand dollars I can't yeah, take yeah. back. And yeah. now I got to put this. Like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, do I put a new cactus? Or what? Now I'm just like, all right, cool. We're probably gonna go with plastic plants going forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, you know. And I can take a deep breath. The most important aspect is I have a newborn. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Orden, who was, you know, going to be 12 weeks on Monday. And I was, I was like, I need to be better. I need to figure out a way to really like fast forward this healing process because I know I'm about to enter an environment where he's going to cry a lot mm -hmm. and I can't be irritated like, like that. And 
thank the Lord that we did it in perfect timing because um, my wife's been able to go, you know, tell me, like, honestly, be like, I'm so impressed by you because you handle him so well. Mm -hmm. And even though, like, and you recognize when you're about to get irritated and you're kind of like, settle yourself down. Right. And last night was one of those perfect examples where we did, uh, you know, she went out with her friends for dinner and I was like, I'm babysitting. And it was like boys night out mm -hmm. in the house. And we have a nanette, and so she can like a video, and we can hear and see and things like that. And we just gave him a bath. And he was, you know, after the bath, he was crying. And I didn't realize she could actually hear because she gets like a notification. She could hear our conversation. And then like when I went to you know bed, and then when she came home, we went to bed. She's like, Flo, I just want to say I'm really like proud of you. Like you're so good with him. I was like, What are you talking about? She's like, Oh, I could hear you talking to him when he was crying and you're like so comforting and loving and i was like it's cool dude like you got this and i mm. cried out <laughs> and i was like yeah she's like i don't think you would have been that guy a year ago mm -hmm. i think you would have been just really frustrated and because you can't figure out how to make him stop crying right and you'll think you're failing and that would have frustrated you mm -hmm. and i was like you know what and it's part of this process so hyper bears chamber has been huge and then working with dave and you know he's got all these connections in these groups and these folks and Next, I'm going to be hopefully talking to one of the doctors that was uh, working with Tom Brady. I think you know what I'm talking about in, in Massachusetts. Um, Maybe not. No. She did the TB12 thing. And so she does this like holistic, you know, sort of like a check on you from, okay. you know, head to toe. And, you know, to all the tests, blood tests and everything, mm. scans and mental health. And, and she really creates this package of of well-being package that you follow and it's been amazing for professional athletes and so many folks and mm -hmm. some veterans that she's been able to see. So I'm looking forward to starting that. Awesome, man. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about your, your continuing on this, on this journey of, of healing and just, you know, becoming the best version of, of yourself. It's life, man. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, last question for you. What does, well, first, obviously you're at the 38 challenge in, yeah. in DFW. What was that environment like for you? Oh, it's fun. First, um, I I didn't know what to expect, right? First of all, the workout is a lot more challenging than expected. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I'll run a quarter of a mile. I'll do these, you know, push-ups and I'll do these sit-ups and, you know, there's all stuff here. Okay. It doesn't sound that bad. And I was like, holy macro. Then I got super competitive. Yep. Um, you were busting it, dude. Like, yeah, you were. Yeah, I, did, I I was moving. I was I say I was in top five percent, but I was way oh, way behind 100%. that one guy. There was one kid like uh, who's just like a monster. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude it was I, and he's like, he told me at the end. He's a former Marines. He told me at the end. He's like, yeah, I just couldn't let you, I couldn't let an army guy get to me. And I was like, <laughs> bro, I was like, I quit like halfway through trying to get after you. Like, right. And but it was um it was an amazing one is amazing environment because. I saw a lot of my friends, but also a ton, ton of people I've never met. But the fact that you brought in all these different nonprofits, mm -hmm. um, you know, you were talking about the 38 challenge, the impact your brother, impact his head on you and what you're trying to do. But you brought in uh, these, these different nonprofits in the community uh, and you highlighted them. Um, and what I loved about the fact is something that I created when I was running the philanthropic side of Boeing on the military side is, I, I only believe in umbrellas of technology, of organizations I wanted to work together to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, you've at such a young age and you, you're so mature in a sense of understanding how you want to take your, that the, you know, how you want to impact people that you understand the power of teamwork, mm -hmm. right? And grouping these teams and these groups there, bringing Clint to speak, which obviously was amazing. Um, you brought a community. And then you put us through a difficult workout and you obviously, which was adaptive, adaptable to folks, you know, who potentially couldn't do some of the movements or do the running and things like that. But you brought us in an environment where it's competitive, but supportive, mm -hmm. um, where people probably hadn't done any type of work, you know, workout in years mm -hmm. of their lives, but here they are and, and, and they're motivated by it. Um, and then finally, it's the, the sense that you probably judge yourself or you feel like, I can't do this. And then you come into that setting and then you have a purpose to do the workout. And then you look around, you're like, this person's doing it. Like, yeah. I should be able to you see do the it. ATF like, athletes. And you see the ATF yeah, athletes, yeah. missing limbs, you know, blind, whatever it is. And you're kind of like, wow, like, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't give myself an excuse. Mm -hmm. And I probably need to get my game, right? you know, 
And so that to me was incredible power, incredibly powerful. Um, and um, I don't know. I don't know if I could do the workout like you did, like every single day and things like that. And it, and, and the vest. I don't think I'll ever do that again either. Yeah, that 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 messed me up pretty good. By the way, I didn't do it with a vest. Those guys were doing it with this, vests, which was ridiculous. Yeah, this uh, year maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll throw one on you. When is it this year? Uh, we're still working on the date. So we're gonna, yeah. yeah, it'll be it'll be mid July though. Well, good news is I'm started. I'm I'm getting back to like some real hardcore CrossFit. Um, hardcore, <laughs> just a joke. Uh, <laughs> but you know, in my world, hardcore CrossFit which means just going to a CrossFit gym. Right. Um, so there's one that opened right in front of my house. So hell yeah, man. I'll be stronger. Perfect. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Last question: What does you kind of just wrapped it up? Um, but if you could explain what the 38 challenge means to you, what would you what would you say? I mean, saving lives. That's what it means to me. It's just it's uh, it's an, an environment where um, uh, if I'm struggling, you know, it challenges me to be outside of my comfort zone. But most importantly, it connects me to people who um, I I potentially need to go talk to and and, and, and share stories with and listen. And I think it, it, it saves lives. It's mm-hmm. gonna it highlights an incredibly difficult topic with suicide. Um, and it takes away the stigma behind it mm-hmm. and it creates an environment in the community. And in the end, a lot of our folks who take their lives feel like they're no longer part of the community and they don't bring the value and the pain's too much and no one will understand. Mm-hmm. And I think what you do and what the 30 challenge does is um, it removes that stigma, it brings us together, it opens up the conversation and it introduces us to people who potentially can save our lives. Awesome. Thank you, brother, for for opening up. Thank you for for being vulnerable and for your support. I know we'll be doing a lot of awesome things together. Just appreciate the the man that you are and, and our friendship. You too, brother. Awesome. You and your team.